Hello, and welcome back to The Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto. Unfortunately, here again without my normal co-hosts, Dr. Tony Sideri, Stuart Brigham, and the illustrious Paul Williams. However, I think we have a, a great show for you today. This episode is a little out of the ordinary for the curbsiders because we're exploring a much newer field, and that was actually part of my goal for the show, was to talk to people who are doing some very interesting things in the world of medicine. So our guest on this show is Dr. Robert Dixon. He is an expert on the lung microbiome. And what we're going to get into is a lot of unanswered questions, but very thought-stimulating findings that have come out of this early, early field. So Dr. Dixon is a pulmonary and critical care physician at the University of Michigan, where he studies the microbiome of the respiratory tract. As an undergraduate, Dr. Dixon studied the classics and liberal arts at St. John's College and received his medical degree from Duke University. He completed his residency and chief residency in internal medicine at the University of Washington, Washington, and underwent fellowship training in pulmonary and critical care at Michigan, where he's been a member of the faculty since 2014. In his lab, he uses techniques of microbiology and microbial ecology to study the lungs in both health and critical illness and continues to practice and teach trainees both in the clinic and in the ICU. Dr. Dixon has published numerous high-impact papers and journals such as The Lancet and Nature Microbiology, and he is on the editorial board of The Lancet Respiratory Medicine and an associate editor of the journal Microbiome. On this episode, we talk about how the lung microbiome differs both in health, chronic illness, and in acute diseases like pneumonia, sepsis, and ARDS. We also talk about how the lung microbiome may have the ability to predict the frequency of exacerbations in certain chronic lung illnesses and even the severity and progression of certain lung diseases. We'll get into all of this and spend some more time at the end talking about Dr. Dixon's new paper, which was just published last month in Nature Microbiology, in which they had the surprise finding of gut bacteria in the lungs being present during critical illness. This is a wide-ranging discussion on the lung microbiome, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. So joining me tonight is Dr. Robert Dixon from the University of Michigan. Hi, Dr. Dixon. Uh, Hi, Matthew. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. I am very excited to talk to you about pulmonary microbiome. Usually our show is much more geared towards uh, common clinical problems, but one of the other things that that was kind of a mission for the show was to talk to people who are doing interesting things and kind of cutting edge things. And that's why we wanted to talk to you uh, when we, I I heard you speak somewhere else and I was very intrigued. So I, I wanted to talk to you in more depth. Oh, well, I appreciate the interest. I think it's a, um, it is indeed a cutting edge field, but it has all kinds of immediate clinical, clinical implications that I, I enjoy sharing with clinical audiences. So again, I appreciate the invitation. Right. So we, we want to keep we want to keep our audience up to date on things and, and kind of what kind of project what they should be expecting in the future. So but before we get into the, the pulmonary microbiome stuff, I did just want to ask you some some other questions, some basic questions. Uh, sure. So outside of medicine, what sort of things what sort of things do you do to spend your time? Maybe some things that maybe even enhance your medical practice. Um. 
Well, I don't know if this applies to the latter half of your question, but uh, most of my time outside of the hospital and outside of the lab are spent with my, my two young kids um, who are five and two. Uh, they take up most of my energy and time. Um, I uh, recently bought a, a farmhouse with my wife and that, that uh, is filling up our weekends, building chicken coops and things like that. Um, as a hobby, I brew beer. Um, and as you'll hear, microbiology is sort of infused throughout both my work life and my personal life, uh, bacteria at work and yeast at home. Man, I'm, I'm sorry that we don't live near you. Uh, that, that sounds, <laughs> <laughs> I, it sounds like we'd get along. I've, I've yeah. told my wife that it's a future thing, um, that I would really like to have my own chickens, uh, to get fresh mm-hmm. eggs. So that sounds yeah. awesome. Ours are, are only a few weeks old, and they're not quite uh, at the egg-laying stage yet, but I, uh, I think pretty soon we'll have excess, and we'll be looking for people to dump them off on. So next yeah. time you're in Ann Arbor, let me know. Yeah, we, uh, I, I also have a couple uh, little kids, and uh, they, we go through like three or four cartons of eggs a week. So you know, it's de- we'd have to have a lot of chickens, I think, to support the family, but yeah. it'd still be yeah. nice to have some fresh ones. Yeah. So before we get into how the lung microbiome affects uh these chronic respiratory diseases and acute respiratory illnesses can you just what if you had to define it to somebody uh that's never heard of it before how would you define this this field of study sure so um the most broad term i can use the respiratory microbiome Mm -hmm. is uh basically the sum total of all the microbes in the respiratory tract Um, and usually what we're talking about is bacteria partly because we think there are more of them just in terms of number and mass than, than other types. But we also mean viruses and fungi and, and maybe archaea and some more exotic uh, types of microbes. Um, now, your respiratory tract, of course, extends from the tip of your nose all the way to your diaphragm. Um, typically, when we mean the lung microbiome, what we mean is um, these microbial communities in the lower respiratory tract. Um, and, a, and a key distinction between the way we study the microbiology of the respiratory tract you know, since the time of Pasteur until until the last decade or so, is that when your primary technique is culture, you know, you take a respiratory specimen, plate it out, and and see what grows. Uh, you tend to focus on individual organisms. Um, specifically, in the case of infection, we think this patient has a pneumonia. We cultured out some sputum and grew a ton of strep pneumonia. So mm. we sort of think of one bug, one infection, one pathology. Um, the techniques we use when we study the lung microbiome are really ecologic techniques. So and we can get into how we do that, but um, rather than a biography like you get from a culture where it tells you everything you need to know about this particular organism, you get something like a population census where it tells you um, you have this percentage of this bug, this percentage of this bug, um, these complex communities. And how are these, how are these samples gathered and, and analyzed? What sort of techniques are, are you using Mm-hmm. So um, when we study the lung, um, most studies to date, at least in the diseases I study, use bronchoalveolar lavage. And really it parallels what we use clinically. Uh-huh. Um, for chronic lung diseases where the patients spontaneously produce sputum, so cystic fibrosis, non-CF bronchiectasis, and, and some COPD, um, sputum will be used. Um, in some studies, induced sputum. In some studies, we've used protected specimen brushes, which are less frequently used clinically, but um, still a, a very reasonable way of sampling the lower respiratory tract. But the bulk of what we've done has been with bronchoalveolar lavage. A handful of studies have been lucky enough to use explanted tissue um, from patients undergoing lung transplant or, or some other surgery. Um, that's obviously no healthy volunteers volunteer right. for, for that. 
Okay. So basically you're uh, squirting some saline into the lungs, taking yep. it out, and then mm-hmm. what sort of technique? Is it is it, M, is it RNA or DNA that you're analyzing? How, yeah, how so is it done from there? That's right. So it's, it's DNA, uh, and it gets a little confusing because there's a specific stretch of DNA that codes for an rRNA gene. Mm-hmm. So this is the ribosomal RNA and the 16S. Um, if that you remember way back, what distinguishes the ribosomes of bacteria and humans is that they're 16S. Uh, it, it's the DNA sequence that codes for the ribosomal RNA. And it's this short, in our cases with the techniques we use, about 250 base pair stretch of DNA that is common to all bacteria. Um, so it distinguishes their DNA from ours. Mm-hmm. But there's enough variation from species to species or genus to genus that it lets us make this kind of roughly genus or species level call for each sequence. So in a given experiment, if I, if I take a patient to the Bronx suite, I stick my scope into their lungs, I spray some saline, I suck it back out. We then amplify all the DNA. Um, we selectively amplify the, the 16S DNA, the bacterial DNA. And then we, get, we may get 20,000 reads, 20,000 sequences, um, each one describing that one small stretch of DNA for a different bug. And that's how we make this sort of population survey of what communities are down there. It, in the normal respiratory um, ecosystem of, of a healthy individual, how does that differ from someone with an acute lung illness like a pneumonia or someone with a chronic lung disease like a, a COPD or a cystic fibrosis or asthma, something like that? Sure. So the characteristics of the lung microbiome and health are um, pretty reproducible from patient to patient and lab to lab. And that is, it looks like the mouth. Um, it, what we've come to learn is that a lot of what we've dismissed as um, oral contamination on lower respiratory tract specimens in the past uh-huh. are probably not contamination. It's probably more reflecting the fact that the lungs and the upper respiratory tract are in constant dynamic communication with each other. And this is a two-way street, right? You have microaspiration, subclinical microaspiration happening all the time from the top down. But also the function of the mucociliary ladder is to just clear out bacteria and their byproducts from the lower respiratory tract. Um, interestingly, if you stick a bronchoscope through the mouth or if you skip, stick it through the nose, it makes no difference as far as what we found in the lower respiratory tract. It still looks like the mouth, uh-huh. which is uh, an indirect argument that it's really not just contamination from the scoping. It really is what they look like down there. I see. So in, so in health, your lung communities look like your mouth communities, and they're very low biomass. They're really um, – it's about a hundredfold um, lower bacterial burden in a lung lavage than you find in an oral rinse to give you a sense of scale. And the mouth itself is, is considerably less than you'd find in the lower GI tract. So that's, that's in health. In chronic airway diseases, typically so for since cystic fibrosis, asthma, um, COPD, typically we find a higher bacterial burden than you find in health, especially the more advanced the disease. And again, that's not, that's not counterintuitive. Um, we've known that whether you have advanced COPD or advanced um, CF or bronchiectasis, Eventually, you get colonized, which is reflecting uh, an increased bacterial burden detectable by culture, and usually it's a handful of bugs that do it. You also see a shift in community membership. And what I mean by community membership is just who is making up the population. So whereas the bugs that we find in health tend to be these, what we think of as rather benign upper respiratory tract bugs like Prevotella and Valinella, these um, anaerobes, in these diseases like COPD, CF, bronchiectasis, Often we see what looks like a shift towards 
um, gram-negative rods. Proteobacter is the mm-hmm. phylum that contains things like Pseudomonas, Haemophilus, Moroxella. Uh, even when the patients aren't symptomatic with acute infections or detectable with colonization by culture. Um, acutely, the diseases we've looked at are pneumonia. And I mentioned pneumonia is really a sort of limit case of low diversity, high biomass, domination by a single pathogen. Um, and more recently, we just published uh, the, the, the first study look, using these techniques to look at ARDS. And what was surprising about that is um, enrichment with gut bacteria, lower gut bacteria that, that really should not be in the, in the mm-hmm. respiratory tract. So the so in pneumonia, when you say biomass, you're just talking about like when, when you do your um, culture independent techniques, you mm-hmm. get you get all these this microbial DNA back, and the mm-hmm. di- so you get a huge diversity of it. But in pneumonia, it kind of there's one dominant like overly dominant bug. Is yeah. That, okay. That, and, that's correct. Yeah. When we started the field, I think one thing we were sort of suspecting is that maybe we were missing maybe a lot of culture negative pneumonia was pathogens that we just weren't culturing out. Mm-hmm. I think that's true some of the time. Um, but usually what we find with these techniques matches up pretty well with what you find by culture. The way I think of it is the when you send a specimen down to the, the clinical micro lab right. and you say, culture this out and tell me what's there, you're really asking them a, a very specific question, which is, does this patient have an infection? Mm-hmm. So those, those techniques that they're using have been refined over the years to detect pathogens, and they do a pretty good job of it. Um, we haven't really found that there's this whole class of pathogens that are, are causing acute infections in, in the case of obviously clinically detectable pneumonias. When you have a pneumonia, the things that tend to track together are the total bacterial burden, so the amount of bacterial DNA we t- detect, the collapse of the community, so having low diversity and domination by one bug, culture positivity, so actually having a but detectable bug in the, in the clinical micro lab, um, and also the things you'd expect on the host side, like neutrophils and, and inflammatory cytokines. And we, we found increased catecholamine concentrations, which is interesting because at least in a Petri dish, and this is interesting and surprising, catecholamines actually promote the growth of, of many um, respiratory pathogens like pseudomonas. So it's an interesting idea that there might be a positive feedback loop where uh, the ecosystem collapses around a pathogen. This creates more inflammation, and some of those inflammatory molecules, like catecholamines, actually stimulate the growth of the pathogen that was causing the trouble in the first place. Man, so, so in the in the chronic lung disease, you said there's mm-hmm. more diversity, but it's in a bad way. Like there's there's gram negative rods down there, or yeah, kind you of- see. You see, and it, it sort of so one funny thing about ecology is that there's a there's a dozen ways to measure any any one thing you you, you mm-hmm. care about. Um, I, I wouldn't say there's a consistent pattern of diversity in chronic lung disease. It tends to depend on how severe your airway inflammation and injury is. So, to give an example of cystic fibrosis, which is one that's been very well studied using sputum at least. Um, early in the disease, often some of the studies do show increased diversity. So there are more bacterial uh, taxonomic group or species detected in the lower respiratory tract than you would expect. Mm. Eventually, over time, and we really don't know how much of this is due to the advancing lung disease and how much is due to how much antibiotic exposure these patients get, you tend to see a chronic collapse in diversity, and usually a a dominant pathogen emerges, and not not quite as severe as you see in, in pneumonia, but usually they become, and we see this clinically, sort of a pseudomonas-dominated respiratory microbiome or a staphylococcus-dominated respiratory microbiome? From a clinical standpoint, um, Mm -hmm. a lot of us, so 
the audience mostly internists. We see a lot of patients with asthma, COPD, definitely some bronchiectasis, probably not as much CF because those patients uh, tend to be younger. But how how does that affect the, the phenotype of patients that we see um, with asthma and COPD? Uh, so great question, and one that we are trying to answer now. The early suggestion of signal is, for one, that um, our interventions change the lung microbiome in these patients. So if you think about it, we treat a lot of these patients with macrolide antibiotics. We treat them with inhaled steroids. Uh, lots of them are on proton pump inhibitors. All of those have been shown to, or at least associated with differences in the lung microbiome. Um, in the one disease st- process where I know it's been studied prospectively, uh, which is non-cystic fibrosis bronchiectasis, uh, you could stratify patients by the membership of their lung microbiome at baseline, and it would predict uh, how many exacerbations you'd have in the following year, depending on whether you were dominated by Pseudomonas or Haemophilus. And this was not something that you could detect just by looking at the respiratory cultures. So it may be that, you know, I, I'm sure you've heard the buzz, buzzwords precision medicine or personalized medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may be that, and usually when people talk about that, they're talking about you know, tailoring a, a, a treatment to the patient's genotype or the specific disease phenotype, it may be that we need to take into account the bacterial communities in the respiratory tract when we pick, pick therapies. Um, the other thing that we've noticed is that in a number of diseases, the, the community structure, the types of bacteria we detect tend to correlate with disease severity. Um, that was pretty clear early on with asthma and cystic fibrosis. It's, it's been shown more convincingly recently in COPD. Uh, one intriguing thing, and this may not be something you see in your general clinic, but diseases that we're not uh, – most of what we're talking about, things like CF, things like um, COPD, we have um, we've always sort of thought of as having something to do with bacteria in the respiratory tract. We treat their exacerbations as if they're infectious. Um, but one fascinating one is idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, mm-hmm. which um, uh, usually I imagine they're getting cared for in specialty clinics, but – um, that's always been sort of thought of as a dry disease, not something that we've we've treated historically with antibiotics or, or thought of as infectious. Right. Um, but now a couple of studies, one from from our center and one from um, Imperial College in England, have shown that you could predict based on baseline differences in the microbiome, disease progression and mortality, which is really provocative. Yeah. That that because there was a there's an important trial a few years ago that showed that steroids were actually harmful. We used to treat all these patients with prednisone, and then we found that there was a roughly 10-point increased mortality with that. Um, so it's a, it's a fascinating idea that some of the inflammation and injury that we're seeing chronically in that disease process, um, it may not be unrelated to the differences we're finding in the microbiome that predict disease progression. So I guess the, the, follow, the next question for, to be answered, which I'm sure isn't answered yet, is it, you, can, you can predict who is going to do poorly in these diseases, but then how do yeah. you intervene to favorably yep. change the lung microbiome to prevent the, the disease from progressing or exacerbating? Yep, it's that's the um, I would call it the million dollar question, but that's certainly an understatement. Right. Um, if, if, you could, <laughs> if you could identify that there's this whole arena of the disease process that we haven't even been trying to manipulate yeah. that somehow um, contributes to disease progression and is, and is more importantly is modifiable. And, and the key thing, and this is I think underlying your question, it's not just an epiphenomenon. It's not just an artifact of the disease that sure it's different and it's associated with disease progression, but it's actually playing a role. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole lot of, to, to come back to our earlier discussion, chicken and the egg about this. Um, yeah. it's, it's, there's no question that um, microbes are capable of provoking inflammation and inflammation is capable of mediating injury. 
But there's also no question that inflammation and injury change the ecosystem of the lungs and in turn change the microbiota. Um, so you have to be pretty um, sophisticated in your experimental design to tease out um, whether it's actually an intervene- intervenable option or, or target. Right, especially because you're saying that you're, you were saying that it's going to be hard to do randomized controlled trials in these. So to prove causation is probably going to be be difficult. Yeah, I think a good start, and this is what I'm advocating for, is that if you're doing a randomized controlled trial and your intervention in any plausible way might affect the microbiome, and that's that's just about everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, we owe it to ourselves to sample the microbiome before intervention and and afterwards to ask if you can stratify responders and non-responders based on differences in the baseline microbiota. Um, I'll give you an example that transcends disease processes and I think is a very provocative one is azithromycin. So you might have noticed that pulmonologists love azithromycin. Um, It's sort of become our statin. Um, (laughs) We give it for chronic, chronic, presumably non-antibiotic effect in cystic fibrosis, non-CF bronchiectasis, uh, lung transplantation and rejection, and COPD most recently. And um, what we've told ourselves is that, yes, it's an antibiotic, but really it's an immunomodulator. And it's probably because of that effect that it works to decrease exacerbation of frequency. I think we're kind of coming back and saying, well, how do we know that? How do we know it's an immunomodulatory effect and not working by way of the microbiome? And it may be that you could look and um, characterize patients at the beginning of the trial look at who does and doesn't seem to respond to the therapy and ask yourself whether this is something you can stratify and save someone the potential toxicities of the, of the drug uh, up front if you just knew based on the microbiota whether they were respondable or not. And that's, I mean, that seems very doable. So yeah. the, I guess the, one of the things uh, that you mentioned, if, if you have to do a lavage to get the samples, that's kind of an invasive procedure. So for large yeah. trials, it may, might be a little unwieldy, unwieldy but are, are there more non-invasive ways to do it or less invasive um, ways? What's been done and what I see being done, we have an asthma trial ongoing and they're using induced sputum Mm. for that purpose. Yvonne Huang's the the investigator at our center doing that. Um, The folks at Imperial have used induced sputum as well. This is really provocative, but they took um, COPD patients, gave them, this is not a a treatment trial, this is more of an experimental model. Um, They gave patients rhinovirus and provoked symptoms. These are people with very mild COPD. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think our IRB would allow us to do that <laughs> in healthy uh, volunteers. You got to love it. Yeah, yeah. Um, patients with mild COPD gave them rhinovirus, um, showed that it provoked the symptoms consistent with an exacerbation, and showed that it did affect the, the respiratory microbiome as measured by induced sputum. So I think that's um, feasible, um, induced sputum is. Um, in my own world, in the ICU, um, I've had some success using mini BAL. So this is um, effectively you know, sticking a blind catheter through an endotracheal tube to sample the lower respiratory tract. Um, and what we need are some head-to-head studies to compare what you're measuring that with that compared to a full bronchoscopy, compared to an endotracheal aspirate, compared to an upper respiratory tract specimen. That work hasn't been done. But um, right. in the chronic setting, I think induced sputum is probably a good compromise between um, sampling the lower respiratory tract and the uh, the invasiveness of our procedures. <laughs> From my experience in multiple hospitals, uh, the, the, there's a lot of hesitancy to get induced sputum. So I guess in the experimental <laughs> setting, you have that on your side. But it's uh, r- respiratory therapists in my institution don't seem to like to uh, do an induced sputum. But yeah, 
I, I, I yeah, almost yeah. have beginning to think it was a myth. Um, yeah. Oh, and I'm sure a lot of this is very regional and uh, stuff that you, you find can get pulled off someplace and, and, and right. can't else. Yeah, absolutely. So these, these therapies that you're talking about, antibiotics and steroids, they're kind of like big, big guns uh, as far as I'm sure it's pretty unpredictable effects that they might be having on the, on the microbiome. Do you yeah. have a, as far as, uh, if you give someone a macrolide and, and they were, you're trying to prevent exacerbations, do you think it just knocks down, it kind of equalizes the respiratory microbiome or the pulmonary microbiome and to the point where there's no longer one dominant pathogenic organism or, or does it help? Um, Is there any, uh, any thoughts of how that might work? Um, probably yes to every potential mechanism you can think of. So <laughs> what, what, what makes macrolides so tricky is that uh, they really do work on both sides of the host microbe interface. So of course, they're antibiotics. They're also immunomodulators. People are surprised to hear this, but tacrolimus, the, uh, the immunosuppressant that we use for a lot of solid organ transplants, that's a macrolide. Um, really? So some of them can be quite potent in their immunomodulation. Um, there's actually hundreds or I think thousands of macrolides out there. Um, all the studies, to my knowledge, have used the clinically available ones, clarithro, azithro, things like that. Um, I, I wonder if part of the um, effectiveness of macrolides in chronic lung diseases is because it's messy and it works on both sides. There, mm-hmm. You need some amount of community manipulation. You also need some amount of host immune modulation. Um, but it's all wildly speculative at this point until we do these studies where we actually see if the microbiome has an effect or is affected by an effect correlated with response, we're, we're really only guessing. Now, we, we talked to somebody recently about fecal transplants, and I'm sure, mm-hmm. I'm sure you've been asked this before, but sure. lung, lung microbiota transplants, do you think that is something coming down the line? I have no idea, um, and, and I'm sure no one does. Um, it is uh, a provocative idea. I'll say this. I suspect, based on what we've found about how much back and forth communication between the upper and lower respiratory tract there is, both in health and disease, um, that I suspect you may not need to do a lung microbiota transplant. It may be enough to change the upper respiratory tract microbiota. Um, mm-hmm. But even in animal models, I'm aware of no experiment that's shown um, how modifiable or manipulatable the lung microbiome is. I know it certainly changes with antibiotics. I know it certainly changes with immunosuppression. Sure. Um, I mean, a question people also ask me is, because there actually have been, and this surprises people, but a few positive probiotic trials for lung disease. There are a couple that showed in the ICU that probiotics, and these are, I'll make clear, enteric probiotics. These are probiotics going into the GI tract. Um, uh, had it were positive trials in preventing ventilator-associated pneumonia. Um, there are a couple that, that suggested a decreased frequency in cystic fibrosis. Um, I am, I'm not endorsing this. I think they're small and they need to be, you know, appropriately powered multi-center mm-hmm. trials. But um, we don't even know if you give someone an oral and enteric probiotic, if that's having indirect effects on the lung immune response to the microbiota or if there are direct changes in the lung communities as a result of that kind of manipulation. I think um, both in terms of trying to reconstitute the microbiome, either, either with fecal microbiota transplant or probiotics, or with um, suppressing it with antibiotics, we're really using you know very coarse, coarse tools. You know, it's yeah. the equivalent of a, you know a, a, an atom bomb, and what you need is a, a more targeted strike. So it's yeah, it's not it's not quite a precision strike when you're when you're giving an antibiotic and kind of affecting all the flora. And and we, right. I think with 
with fecal transplants, it's the same thing. No one knows Absolutely. exactly how it works. Are you are you affecting the immune response? Are you is it or is it by the positive change in the in the actual population of micro yep. the microbiome that's doing it? So I, I, I guess that is the really interesting question to get into. Yeah. I, I want wherever I, I think I think it's a mystery in the gut and and uh, subtract ten years from the science and that's where we are in the lungs. <laughs> so we're even yeah. more in the dark there. Well, maybe you guys can collaborate. Um, yeah. So I, I have some random questions towards the sure. end that I wanted to get to, but I, I want to go a little bit more in depth into the, the study that you have coming out. It's in um, mm-hmm. Nature Microbiology coming out. Is that the is that the right journal? Yep, that's right. Okay. Yep. And just just published last week. Just came out. Okay. And it's it's basically uh, can can you kind of give us like the the abstract version and talk about how you think that's going to play into the future direction of the field? Sure. Um, uh, I'm a fan of history, so I always start with what it, with uh, the oldest observation that I can. Um, back in the 1950s, um, a lab in Boston, Jacob Fine was the, uh, the investigator, noticed something really interesting, which was that in an animal model of hemorrhagic shock, so these are dogs who would, who would lose blood and then get resuscitated, um, if you pre-treated their gut with antibiotics, they would survive. And it was... Wow. Um, really um, ahead of its time. If you think about it, it really was a micro... They were not treating an infection. Um, it was really uh, a microbiome manipulation uh, to change the survival of a non-infectious model. And that observation that if you suppress gut bacteria, you can protect animals in shock has been borne out over and over across species, across shock models. It doesn't matter if it's dogs or pigs or rabbits or, or mice... Um, it doesn't matter if it's hemorrhage, if it's sepsis, if it's ischemia reperfusion, if it's trauma. Um, you improve survival when you suppress gut bacteria. Um, more recently, on the clinical side, there's a phenomenon that, um, or a, a therapy that's actually been very thoroughly studied called selective decontamination of the digestive tract. Um, it's, it's considerably more popular in Europe than in the U.S., specifically in Holland. Um, but it's based on that same idea, which is that if you take patients at risk for sepsis, at risk for ARDS and multi-organ failure, generally in the ICU, and you knock down their gut microbiota with antibiotics, generally enteric antibiotics, uh, over and over it's been shown it improves their survival, it improves their multi-organ failure, it improves their lung injury. And we don't really know how. Um, The speculation has been initially um, that when you get sick, your gut wall gets leaky, bacteria escape from the compartment to the lower GI tract and make their way to other organs. And that's what happens. That's what causes the inflammation and injury that we see in multi-organ failure. But and when they looked, sorry, go ahead. Can I, I just wanted to stop you uh, for a second. The, you said knock it down with enteric antibiotics. So are you talking rifaximin or vancomycin, oral vancomycin or flagell, something like that? Or Yeah. Usually they give broad coverage, usually they use multiple agents. They tend to cover something that with anaerobic coverage, something with broad gram negative coverage too. Um, but given orally still, or given IV? Yeah, okay. oh, given orally. Given often they'll orally. get a they'll get they'll often get a single or a short course of IV um, to treat down anything that they think might have escaped or if they have any extra abdominal infections. Okay. Um, but it's really to emphasize this is really it's prophylactic. It's really not the active treatment of any infection. Mm-hmm. It's specifically supposed to decrease the the bacterial burden in the lower and the upper GI tract too. Got it. So. Um, and people are surprised to know that that's actually been that's actually the most thoroughly studied intervention in all of critical care. It's been studied <laughs> over more than sixty randomized controlled trials, twelve thousand patients, 
And the meta-analyses are really, I think there have been about a dozen meta-analyses by this point, really pretty unambiguous that it, it does save lives, it does decrease multi-organ failure. The issue, as you might guess, is that we're all terrified of breeding resistance. It, it, you know, usually microbiome guys like me are, are scolding docs for overusing antibiotics and encouraging more strict antimicrobial stewardship. Um, here, here's a very thoroughly studied intervention that's, that's urging us or really pointing us to be way more indiscriminate in our use of antibiotics. So there's been a real reluctance to adopt that in the States. Right. And, uh, and I, I have actually never practiced in an institution where it's, where it's commonly used. Oh, uh, and so, I don't, I don't, so outside sorry, of experiments, people are actually doing this in other, maybe yeah. other countries where they're, they're yeah. just kind of sterilizing the gut, uh, when someone comes in critically ill. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, I, the, the ambition is to sterilize the gut. Of course, you can never really sterilize that component, but, but yeah, it's to decrease. And if you look at the, the gut communities and critically ill people, they don't look anything like our gut communities. And I'm, and I'm assuming you're not, you're not, uh, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm doing okay. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's an astonishingly collapsed community, generally dominated by very recognizable bugs like Enterococcus. Um, uh, and it's often only, uh, only a handful of bugs that completely dominate it. And the things that the gut microbiome is supposed to do, like it's got its own metabolism. It's supposed to make these important short chain fatty acids like butyrate. Uh, it's really not doing its job. So it really is in, in that sense, a dysfunctional organ. And, th- and that's what, th- that's what that therapy is supposed to, uh, is supposed to suppress basically the overgrowth of the gut by these, these potential pathogens. Um, so, so. Uh, this is a very long-winded introduction to the idea behind our study, which is um, we know that the gut microbiome is important in critical illness. Um, we know that it has something to do with the development of, of lung injury, of ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. We don't know how. The, the oldest idea was one of translocation, that they thought when you get sick, your gut wall gets leaky, bacteria escape, and they make their way to the lung. When that was studied in the 90s, and they did it very carefully, they sampled all the right compartments. They had a portal vein catheter. They had systemic, they had systemic um, uh, blood access. Um, they really couldn't find anything. A limitation, though, is that they were using culture. And we know that that's not uh, a terribly sensitive technique, especially if what you're looking for is gut bacteria. Um, so we have these new molecular techniques, these very sensitive DNA-based techniques. And um, we thought, let's model sepsis in animals. And let's study the lungs of patients who are critically ill and see if we can find evidence of these gut bacteria in the lung. And that's exactly what we found. So we use mouse models of sepsis. Um, we use sequel ligation and puncture, which is basically a model of, of peritonitis. And we used LPS injection. So this is basically systemic endotoxin. Mm-hmm. Um, and in both of those, we found gut bacteria that really have no business being in the lung overtaking the lung communities. They were persistent they um, were not enriched in the mouth or in the upper respiratory tract, which argues that it's not just aspiration. It's not just coming from the top down. Um, and they uh, were actually viable. In some cases, like with bugs like Enterococcus, we were indeed able to culture them out. Um, on the human side, we had um, 100 specimens from 68 patients with ARDS, with, with this lung injury. Um, and the specific bug we focused on was um, um, an anaerobe from the lower gut, B. fragilis and its cousins um, that were enriched in ARDS lungs and weren't present in normal lungs, and they've never been present in any of the the normal volunteers that we've studied. Um, So it raises the question of, for one, what are these gut bacteria doing in the lungs? Um, And there's three potential routes that they could have used to get there. One is the old leaky gut hypothesis Mm -hmm. that your gut wall gets leaky and they translocate. 
One is that it's from the top down, that it's, it's aspiration from the upper respiratory tract, although that would surprise us based on the types of anaerobes that we were finding. Uh, and the third is that they're blooming, that um, they always potentially have access, but usually the lungs are such an inhospitable environment for these bacteria um, that ecologically they look, the lungs look nothing like the gut in health, um, that they're usually just kept in very low, essentially undetectable abundance, but that when things get diseased, inflamed, injured, leaky, you have a nutrient source, you have anaerobic um, or anoxic gradients, um, suddenly the ecosystem is much more favorable for these bugs and they grow out. So it's going to take uh, some years, some prospective human studies, a whole bunch of animal modeling um, to try to tease out which of these ways is happening. But uh, what we're excited about is that um, aside from that selective decontamination of the digestive tract I was talking about, um, most of our attempts to treat the inflammation and injury of these critical disease, critical illnesses um, have, have failed. We really have no effective targeted therapies for modifying sepsis or ARDS. Right. Um, and it may be that we're just missing part of the boat, like a big part of the missing part of the story, which is that that inflammation and injury is actually in response to these altered microbial communities um, that we've been missing. And so then the big question is, what do we do? What do we do from there yeah. to to favorably alter them or or use this information to 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 affect the outcome of this disease or these diseases? I should say the questions you're asking before are right on the money, which is, is the microbiome a modifiable target? Um, can we treat it specifically with antibiotics, probiotics, um, introduction of, of inert bacteria? Um, could we use it prognostically? Um, is there a way to identify based on the bacteria in the respiratory tract who's at risk of developing ARDS and, and who needs to be watched more closely or intervene or, or, uh, or, or follow more closely? But I, yeah. I will, I'm the first to admit that we're, we're years away from this translating into any specific therapy. But I, I mean, I think it's very interesting. You always hear about uh, bacterial translocation and, you know, being proposed as a how people become bacteremic in something like um, neutropenic fever. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I had not heard it as far as being related to sepsis or a ARDS just in the your run of the mill critically ill patient. So I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, no, a lot. The, the, the jury is definitely still out. I, I don't think our paper is in any way the final word on the subject. Um, we, we certainly know. And another interesting thing to me is that just anatomically, when bacteria escape from the gut, there's, there's really two main routes they could use to get to the lung. One is the, is the portal circulation, so in which case you're filtered by the liver and then you make your way up north to the lungs. Mm -hmm. The other is the lymphatics. And that's what, something in the surgical literature that's been studied quite extensively in the last couple of decades. And um, you can actually detect cultural bacteria from mesenteric lymph nodes. Um, and that, to me, is just a fascinating angle, is that your mesenteric lymph drains into your thoracic duct, which then goes into your subclavian and then to your lungs. And even in health, somewhere on the order of two liters a day of chyle, the filtrate from your gut, is actually being dumped into the lungs. So we, we talk about the gut-lung axis as if it's this abstract thing, but no, it's actually a very, very real mechanical thing you can point to. Um, so I, I think it's a really provocative idea that in, you know, this is always happening, but usually it's not a terribly hospitable environment for bacteria to reproduce and thrive. Um, maybe in the context of critical illness, your defenses get overwhelmed and suddenly it's more of a pipeline than it should be. I'm very interested in all this. I mean, um, the, the lung microbiome, the, the fecal microbiome and where, what other, whatever other microbiomes are out there, sure. um, and how these can be used. And I know there's, I know there's even startups looking at this, uh, which we had mentioned on our other show, 
Um, there's mm-hmm. there's a there's a startup in Boston that just they just provide feces for fecal transplants, and uh, yeah. it's very interesting. I wonder if a comparable company will be coming out for for pulmonary microbiota transplants, or if like maybe you, like you mentioned, maybe maybe you don't even need to transplant uh, directly into the lungs. If you transplant elsewhere, you might get a, a, a benefit in the lungs, which is a very interesting thought. It wouldn't surprise me. Uh, if someone's doing that, they haven't called me up, but okay. what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I doubt there's a fortune to be made on banking sputum, but Hey, who, uh, it's someone else's dollar to make. So. Yeah. Who know? I mean, who yeah. knew there was a fortune to be made on banking stool, you know? Same. Yeah. So my, uh, my last sort of random question, um, do you think that have there been studies in looking the way that you look at the fecal microbiome and patients with insulin resistance, obesity, some of these metabolic disorders or auto, autoimmune conditions? Has there been links or associations um, between these things and the lung microbiome? Great question. Um, offhand, I'm going to say no. Um, for for metabolic disorders, systemic disorders like that. I don't know of any specific studies looking at it. Um, I've seen some murmurings and some posters looking at autoimmune disease, rheumatoid arthritis, scleroderma, um, diseases like that that have lung manifestations. Mm-hmm. Um, so that might be the first inroad there. Um, I think in those other systemic metabolic disorders, <clears throat> the, the biomass in the gut is just so many orders of magnitude higher than what we see in the lung. That there's there's more face validity to the idea that the microbiome is sort of a, a neuroendocrine organ. It's making molecules that affect our host cells and change your metabolism. Um, I I don't yet have my head around sort of what the biologic hypothesis is for why the lung microbiome would be contributing to those diseases. But um, I I think it's probably just a matter of time. So I think we've covered a lot here. I did mm-hmm. want to ask you for some take home points. Um, before that, was there any anything, any other points you wanted to make or things you wanted to get into? Oh no, I could I could go on forever, but no, I think you did. Yeah, we okay. did a good job covering a pretty pretty broad field in a in a fairly short time. Okay, all right. So, what would be the the three main take home points that you would want our listeners to remember about this topic? I suppose the first point would be that the lungs are topologically outside of the body, like the skin, like the gut. They're constantly bombarded by microbes, even in health. And in fact, when you work out the surface area of the lungs and you compare it to recent measurements of the skin and the gut, it's, it's actually the largest host microbe interface in the body. So it's, it's, it's a very, and it's and intimately, the, the, the bacteria that make their way into the respiratory tract are um, taken within millimeters of the, the bloodstream. So um, that's, that's the first point is just that the lungs are never not exposed to the microbial environment. Uh, the second is that consistently the lung microbiome, the communities we, de- measure, we measure are, are altered in disease, both acute diseases and chronic diseases. And the last thing I'd say is that uh, the, these communities are also altered by our therapies. Things that we know affect them like antibiotics, proton pump inhibitors, um, corticosteroids, uh, and probably all sorts of things that we haven't thought through like the way you ventilate a, a critically ill patient. Um, and we're only starting to develop the analytic t- tools to understand what the consequences of these three things are. Great. Well, I'm very interested to see what comes out of this field in the future. And 
I think our listeners are really going to appreciate this episode, probably something that many of them are unaware of uh, before we post this. Uh, well, great. Well, again, I really appreciate the invitation and um, welcome emails and thoughts from your, uh, your listenership. I really appreciate the thoughts. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and don't forget to leave us a review. This helps others discover the wonderful show. If you'd like to contact us directly, then send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com or visit our pages on Facebook, LinkedIn, Google+, and you can also follow us on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. Thanks for listening.